mid-March, everyone, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we have the full crew on hand today for yet another excellent group show. We're going to talk pedals. We're going to talk helmets. We're going to talk about one company's surprising stats on road bike, road bike sales. And then we'll finish with yet another round of Ask a Mechanic. We'll also get a little bonus question with Kaylee, although we will reveal that later. <laughs> Kaylee and Zach. The most difficult a Ask a Mechanic questions are the ones that go to me. That's how it works. Indeed, indeed. Kaylee and Zach, we got a little bit of snow this weekend. How was the skiing? It looked pretty good. It, very good. It was terrible. I put a poll up on a photo that I had of myself, and the question was, did I do a 360 or did I hit a tree? And it really indicated I the, definitely, the small amount of faith that my Instagram followers have in my I ability. Had, I, had a, I had a very small amount of faith. I yeah. definitely clicked on hit a tree. Yeah, <laughs> as a, a photographer, well. I know the true answer to this. <laughs> and... Was ninety-seven percent of the votes correct? It yes. was. It was like it was a small tree. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a branch. Yeah, excellent. It was pretty excellent. great. But the the skiing was good. To answer your question, James. Mm, all right, superb. Good, good to know. It, it was as good as I expect, as I figured it would be, judging from what I saw from other people who were skiing. Twenty-five inches of skiing. snow will do that. Yeah, Dave. I know you did not do any skiing. I did not. But <laughs> I have a question for you. Mm. If you had thought, if you had to think about how much money you spent on tools last year. Yep. How many digits would be in that number? Mm. Left of the decimal place. <laughs> That's a mean uh, question. It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard to I mean, say, but let's let's just say I'd probably have a much nicer car if I didn't buy tools. I was going to say, because right now you're thinking, okay, less, left of the decimal point, is it four digits or five? Uh... Dave Rome, as your lawyer, I advise you not to answer that question. Or wait, mm. your, fa- okay. your financial advisor, I advise you not to answer that question. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, and, and, and your marriage counselor. I mean, they seem like business expenses, so. Yeah, you just write it all off. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, anyway... As much as I have been enjoying skiing this season myself, as much as I enjoy wrenching on bikes, I would much rather enjoy riding them. And for our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, we should remind you that this Saturday is the first official day of spring, and I am ready. Uh, I'm also ready to talk about the news on this show. First and foremost, Speedplay is back. So when Wahoo Fitness bought Speedplay last September, there was a whole bunch of speculation about how things would change, you know, not just to the product, but to the company itself. And now we at least have some good answers to the first part. So we've got four kind of modestly redesigned road pedals, uh, the pending power meter road pedal, and all basically the non-core products have gone away. Like, so sorry, the X-Series road pedals are gone. Uh, the scissors, the frog, the drillium. So those are all just gone because I don't really know how many of those things Speedplay really sold anyway but is this enough to bring Speedplay back well, just no. just just on that real quick I, I did I spoke to Chip Hawkins today who's the founder CEO of Wahoo which now owns Speedplay uh, this is actually a special episode uh, on the regular weekly Cycling Tips podcast channel. You can go check that out. It's about about a 40-minute chat with Chip and Ian Boswell. Uh, and he did mention the fact that they went through, they have all the sales data from, well, when Speedplay was just Speedplay. And they did go through and things that had sold like two units over the course of five years, they stopped making them, which seems like a, a pretty good business decision in general, I think. So I think that's why a lot of those things disappeared. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think I've ever seen a, a pair of drillium flat pedals in the wild ever. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your your broader question, there is this the return of speed play? Um, maybe. May it's a really interesting product. We have some we have some issues with it here uh, in the the way that we ride road bikes. I think because we tend to get off our road bikes and wander around in the dirt quite frequently which means you can but i would say that's pretty atypical yeah i think we're, we're pretty atypical and i think that it's it's quite a decent platform otherwise it has some benefits it's it's super aerodynamic if you're into really high performance stuff it you know has lots of sort of more fit options than a lot of other pedal systems and the big one for me and we also talked about this in the special episode is the essentially the the dealer network and distribution from Speedplay was not always amazing. Uh, I don't know, Zach, you might be you might have some stories about trying to get s- stuff from yeah, Speedplay. Yeah, they definitely had some weird weird ways that you went about to order things. <laughs> yeah, Zach, Zach, before you get into that, I actually got uh, got Jim Potter on the phone. Oh, from, yeah. I'm uh, sure Jim Becky has Oz. a good rant about our, that. Our, our former, <laughs> yeah, our former podcast home base. Uh, and he had some pretty interesting things to say about it because, for sure, I mean the, the the product was already pretty good. Um, it's it's good to see that Wahoo made some some you know meaningful improvements. Um, but for sure, as far as dealers were concerned, and uh, as far as like you know some sort of like sales network uh, goes in the U.S. at least anyway, you know like you said, I mean it definitely had some issues. And what Jim said, uh, I'll go ahead and read this quote. Um, quote. The product was always pretty well liked. It had its heyday and was super hip for a while, and there are loyalists. I have customers to this day who still won't ride anything but Speedplay, but from a dealer perspective, they were pretty tough to deal with. We were a dealer for 20 years, and I ordered a ton of stuff in 2017, not much in 2018 because we had a bunch of carryover, and then I wanted to place another big order in 2019. But when I did, they asked me for pictures of tools and spare parts and stuff to prove that we're legit. (laughs) Classic. Keep in mind that Keep in mind that Jim had just said that he was a dealer for 20 years. So continuing on. So he said, I took some pictures. I took some pictures and sent it off. I made sure everything was fine with my account after that. And then I told them to kiss my ass and cancel my order. That is fantastic. I, I found I I found the whole thing completely ridiculous. It was just hard to do business with them. Thank All you, Wahoo has to do is be Wahoo. They're great. Their customer service is great. Their warranty is good. Their people are good. Eric Stobin, who is the North American sales manager, uh, is just a sweet guy. They just need to be them. Speedplay just didn't make it e- Speedplay just didn't make it easy to be a customer, and Wahoo will make it easy to be a customer. Yeah. Zach, I mean, what do you I think I get as a mechanic, Speedplays have always been my least favorite pedal. They like are notoriously terrible in terms of bearings and the cleats not working very well and just like overly complicated for no reason. And, and then like, say you do need parts, they were very hard to get, I would say. So like for me, I don't quite, other than like people that have specific fit issues where you need, need a lot of float or whatever. I don't understand why speed plate, like sell me on this pedal. Mm. Well, you could, you could get them in pink. <laughs> Not can't anymore. Do, can't anymore. <laughs> so like, if that's your only selling point, then like, why, why is this exciting news? I mean, I think this, you know, the selling point is just adjustability. Like I said, you get some arrow gains, particularly if you get the arrow ones. Uh, 99% of people are not buying the arrow ones. They don't ones. care about that. Yeah. Most, I mean, most people buying these pedals buy them for the double side 
nature of them, which I believe is kind of a, a farce because I think other road pedal systems are actually easier to get into because there's a wider yeah, surface. Exactly. And if you need that but, much yeah. easy, then just get a mountain bike pedal. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to, I mean, I, I did run speed plays a little bit. Uh, I mean, they were never like the only pedal system that I ran, but I remember, you know, like when I was running speed plays a little, a little bit, like they, they seem, they seem like the best option on paper. That's the mm -hmm. thing. Like if you were just comparing everything on a screen or like looking at specs, that sort of thing, they sound amazing. It's like, oh, they're dual sided. They're really small. They're really light. They're, they're faster. They have all this adjustable rotation that, you know, I can, I can, I have all this adjustability for fit and so on and so forth on paper. They sound really, really good in practice. You had all these issues like the out of plane rocking and Zach, like you said, the bearing issues and you know, the durability just generally wasn't very good. The cleats clogged up, so on and so forth. I mean, assuming Wahoo can resolve at least some of those fundamental issues and like, you know, the fact that they went to that full circumferential metal ring on the body now, I think that'll help a ton. Mm -hmm. um, but if they can fix even some of that stuff, then yeah. I, I think there's still enough in the Speedplay name and brand and reputation to pull some people back. Yeah. I mean, I had a customer call yesterday that was like, I ride Speedplay scissors and cannot find any cleats. Do you have any? And I was like, nope, sorry. Scissors are a separate topic. Yeah, entirely. that's a whole other topic. But like <laughs> the people that ride speed plays are very loyal. I would say. Yeah. I wouldn't underestimate the importance of a uh, happy and good dealer network as well, which is yes. something that Speedplay has not really had in a very long time, for exactly the reasons that Jim Potter just mentioned. And if that changes, which it probably will, because Wahoo is extremely good on that front, then that that will make a dramatic impact, right? It'll it'll make shops more likely to want to sell them. It will make them more likely to want to deal with them. That means that you're going to sell more. Uh, I mean, Chip, again, to reference the chat I just had with him, said that they sold a huge number of these things in literally the first day that they were available, which would have been earlier this yeah. week. Uh, like. Yeah. To the point where he he compared it to probably the equivalent of months worth of sales for original Speedplay. So there is people been able to get them for the last year. Well, the yeah, market, the market huge, was starved. So huge yeah. amount of market starvation, but also just yeah, a lot of people that are still interested in this yeah. and, and are willing to give the the new version a shot. And if you have a good good dealer support, that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. For okay. me, I'm not a huge fan of the product for for reasons that have been mentioned, but I don't uh, I don't doubt for a second that the brand is going to grow from here. Um, based oh yeah, on the they're going to crush. Like said. And I actually see a future where uh, Look will be the smaller pedal brand available, right? You've got SRAM behind time, you've got Shimano, and now you've got Wahoo pushing speed play. I actually see a day where, where Look becomes the fourth player. It, which is funny because, you know, Look certainly was in a... Is, what, can you all hear? Can you all hear my kid playing piano right now? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't good. think the listeners she, will be able to she, hear it, she's, but... Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll have the editor just drop in some Mozart and we'll say that that's your daughter. <laughs> oh yes, perfect, perfect. <laughs> anyway, yeah, because we are in a, we are in a situation now where you know, look, did have this period of just you know massive dominance, but you know it, it's sort of like the classic situation where they were where they kind of had this golden age and seemingly got really complacent. Like they haven't done anything since I mean, the blade. I would say look, look, kind of suffers the same problems that Speedplay. It's like plastic parts that wear out and really bad yeah. bearings yeah which can't be serviced <laughs> right yeah which is why i'm very much fully on like why would you ride anything other than shimano red pedals yeah. that is a good question 
Yeah. Although the bearings are apparently better on the new speed plays, the Wahoo speed plays, in theory. They have actual seals on them now, so that'll help. I mean, they're great <laughs> until you like go from your car, step in a p- little bit of grass to go to your bike race, and then you can't get clipped in. <laughs> For, for those of you who don't remember, Neil Rogers, our our former editor at large, he I remember he had a story somewhere that he wrote up somewhere I believe, but I remember he he had a story where he was lining up for a race and you know went to use the porta potty, and he was in speed plays at the time and just you know walked off the side Big of the mistake. road to the porta <laughs> yeah. potty, and then that was it. Like he couldn't even get into his pedals. You like, can't be using over. the porta potty in speed plays. That's I mean that's really the fault of the race promoter making you walk through a little bit of mud. <laughs> Um, um, unless the race promoter was a Shimano fan, it was just trying to prove a point. Yeah. Well, you just have to carry around the little like cleat cleat cover things, the little plugs. Use those all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure Wahoo's going to crash and sell lots. They will. So this is yeah fantastic yeah. news. They're still an interesting pedal, I think. It is an interesting pedal, and like I said, if they can eliminate some of the quirks of that pedal and really kind of finally refine the 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 main design of that thing, the way it really arguably should have been what 10 15 years ago or something then yeah i think they'll i think they'll have something there i mean wahoo wahoo's pretty smart they weren't going to buy that company and not have a plan for how to kind of pull it back so it'll be good to see what happens here so we'll keep an eye on that they bought the company for power we should say for power meter pedal that's true that's why they bought the company and that's coming true but but in order to make a good power meter pedal you still have to have a good pedal to start with Yeah. yeah so yeah Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens here. The power meter pedal, I think, could be really cool, but we'll find out. We'll find out soon enough. Indeed. Moving on. So the last couple of weeks have also been pretty big for helmet releases. Uh, We got word of three different new road helmets that either came out just now or are soon to be announced. So we have the the specialized S-Works Prevail 2 vent. Uh, It's basically just an airier version of the existing Prevail. We have the Cask Wasabi. It's the long overdue replacement for the Infinity and features that same kind of silly, well, I shouldn't say silly, but same sliding cover thing that lets you have adjustable airflow. It's pretty silly. And then we have <laughs> and, and then we have an unnamed new Giro helmet that looks like it could be a replacement or at least a supplement to the Vanquish Aero Road model. So, I mean, there are details about all those helmets. We're not, we're not going to debate all that or talk about all that, but... What I found interesting about all of them is the three approaches that they have to managing rotational energy. So Specialized uses MIPS SL. It's integrated into the pads. Um, that new Giro helmet has its own MIPS spherical where you basically have you know two helmets nested one inside the other for like a real ball and socket effect. And then you have Cask, who continues to be pretty open about not believing in MIPS. So the question I have here for this one is... Is not having MIPS a deal breaker if you are a general consumer looking for a helmet? I think for me at this point, it probably is actually. Yeah. I mean, there's been enough of that testing. Was it the Virginia Tech testing, right? Uh, is that the yeah. school? I believe so. Yeah. Um, yep. There's been enough of that out now, and it's just been sort of the consistency with which helmets with some sort of rotational device test better is enough to make me pretty much want MIPS or some version therein uh, for pretty much any helmet I'm going to put on. Yeah. Devil's advocate there, which is the way they test those helmets, the head form is a dummy without a sliding element to the head form. So no skin, no hair. Um, Right. So so so... yeah, there's some argument out there that's saying, you know, that test 
is is biased towards a, a helmet that has rotational system but perhaps maybe it's not required i don't know i'm i'm very much on the fence here i i'm probably leaning where kaylee is now where most of my helmet decisions like if i were to buy a helmet a mountain bike helmet today i'd want it to have mips but i'm still yeah, yeah. what's interesting is you know f- you know f- i would say by and large you know almost without fail that the head forms that people are using for testing, you know, they are rigid or like basically rigid head forms that don't have some sort of, you know, artificial scalp or, or hair or anything. And, you know, I had asked Cask about this before and let's see, what, what did they say? They said, they said the different test methods used today to show the performance of rotational impact technologies all use head forms whose coefficient of friction is much higher than a real human head. In fact, for this reason, no regulatory body has created standards, including this type of test. Uh, CENTC 158-WG11 is rewriting a norm on head forms and test methods. And within this group, there is a hot debate on the coefficient of friction. So basically what they're saying is it's, it's basically exactly what you just said, Dave. I mean, because we don't have, the, because the head forms don't fully mimic how an actual human head is with a scalp and hair, um, you know, Cask is saying that they don't believe in MIPS. But what's weird is that, you know, even if, let's just say Cask is right. Let's just say that they are, you know, kind of one of the lone arbiters of truth here. But... Uh, I haven't seen any evidence at all that suggests that MIPS or equivalent technologies are bad, that, that make a helmet less safe. So if there is some, even if there's some doubt around that, there doesn't seem to be anyone saying that it's bad. So why wouldn't you put that in your helmet? I mean, yes, I know that there there's a licensing charge and like you, there is a fee that you have to pay to MIPS in order to integrate those into your helmet. But if it's a difference between someone buying your helmet at all and not buying it, it seems like it's still a really questionable move to not incorporate it into your helmet, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I guess that's that's on the assumption that the whole market is is where we're at with this, which is you know we you know buying a helmet based on the fact that it has MIPS or not. Um, perhaps Cask has found that that's not necessarily uh, the case throughout Europe. Uh, you know, maybe maybe there's a large portion of road cyclists that just look at the weight and, and ventilation of the helmet and that's you know, those are still the key factors and they haven't quite triggered to the fact that there are different levels of safety offered out there. Uh, yeah, I would guess that, that weight, ventilation and looks are probably the three primary factors for most yeah. buyers. Very few are probably going to look at you know, testing or anything like that. That said, I think that the trend is is away from that. The trend is towards paying a little bit more t- attention to to safety. And it is, yeah, yeah, personally, personally, I don't really see any. It doesn't like MIPS has gotten sort of low profile enough. Some of the early stuff actually made the helmets fit differently. I'm thinking about some of like the early Giros that it was in, but it doesn't it doesn't do that anymore. And there's not a whole lot of downside comfort wise. So yeah, I just, I, I personally don't see any real reason to avoid it. It does tend to add a little bit of cost to the helmet, but who cares? Yeah. Cask is, is, (laughs) is like more expensive anyway. So yeah. Um, what's, what's interesting. I mean, this is 
kind of unrelated, but uh, Giant, they, 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 I just reviewed their Rev Pro MIPS helmet, which just is now, I think it's ranked third in the Virginia Tech's results as far as the safest road helmet that they've tested. Uh, Giant actually told me they don't make a helmet to CE standard because the, sand, the standard, so the CE standard's the one used throughout Europe. Uh, they don't make one to CE standard because it's not safe enough. I mean, I, I like that there is a, a renewed focus on helmet safety in general. And like mm-hmm. you said, Kelly, like that, that's a good trend. Um, but this is an issue that I would really like to see settled once and for all. And, you know, Dave, you and I were talking about this before before we started recording. Mm. It'd be really nice to see a more detailed study on the whole MIPS thing in general that wasn't conducted by a Swedish university that might that help to fund with... the technology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, just for fun, I'd like to see a different university, you know, one I mean, <laughs> connected to MIPS do it. It's kind of mind-blowing that no one that makes helmets is testing, or like doing the testing, taking hair into consideration, as basically almost everyone has hair. I, I mean, I, like, think, I think a lot of helmet brands are probably doing testing, they just can't say anything about it because they'll get sued you know yeah. like look well, just look at the, just look at the Bontrager issue they, they make they make one claim and and all of a sudden they're they are actively getting sued right now you can see yeah. why helmet manufacturers just stay far 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 away from any real safety messaging and and yeah. that's actually from kind of a, a marketing perspective mips is a way for helmet brands to talk about safety without putting their own without putting themselves at risk basically they can just say we have mips and that means something to the to the buying public yeah it doesn't really no one really knows exactly what that means but it is it has a positive connotation and so yeah yeah it's sort of a way for helmet brands to kind of get around talking about their their own helmet safety without yeah sort of without putting themselves in any sort of legal jeopardy right it's sort of like an easy out for them yeah like it's you know, why not put it in there if they if it's going to be perceived as a plus by the consumer market? You know, even if it does cost us a little bit, if it gets us more market share, then it seems like a good deal. Yeah, yep. I mean, MIPS in my mind, like from a marketing point of view, MIPS has kind of become like uh, what Gore-Tex is to waterproof wear in a sense. Like it's just such a strong brand that you see MIPS, you're like, oh, it's it's a safe helmet, right? Uh, and I think that holds massive amounts of value in the marketplace for for selling helmets um and yeah it's basically what kaylee said i think it's just as a branding exercise i think it's it's become its own its own thing and until someone steps in and says you know definitively with a truly independent study whether it works or not and in what conditions uh i think yeah we'll probably still be having this conversation i don't see i don't see this debate going away anytime soon uh yeah another another one that we'll keep our eye on but Moving on to actual bicycles, uh, Dave, you and I had a conversation with the folks at Cervelo the other day uh, about yeah. a topic that we cannot reveal just yet. Uh, but we can talk about one portion of the conversation that really struck me. Uh, you know, Cervelo has long been, I would say, you know, one of the most prominent brands in road racing and triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I would argue probably probably viewed as kind of one of the most like hardcore roadie brands. Um, and, you know, I'd argue that most people still think of the company as dealing primarily in skinny tires and pavement. And Cervelo's own, uh, their own sales statistics support that for the most part. However, since the debut of their Aspero gravel bike model in 2019, uh, Cervelo's seen some pretty dramatic shifts in sales figures. So according to them, TT and Tri are still pretty steady at... Um, it used to be a third before the whole COVID boom. 
Um, but you know, the, those numbers are still steady and absolute numbers, but I guess a smaller percentage when you account for the growth. Um, but now, well over half of Cervelo buyers are now buying the Caledonia all-road bike, you know, something in that family, mm-hmm. or the Aspero gravel bike. Yep. And traditional road bikes are now well below half of their total sales. And Cervelo has even admitted to us that they're paring down their traditional road models to basically just the high-end racing bikes. Um, you know, looking back, you know, I wrote in a column when I was working for Bike Radar uh, way back in 2013 that road racing bikes were kind of dumb for everyday riding. Are we finally there now? Uh, I think I think Cervelo's figures are showing that we're we're absolutely on the way, but I believe the market itself still has a long way to go as far as accepting that road racing bikes may not be the best choice for everyone out there i think i think there's still yeah i think we've we've come a long way uh and i think the sales in gravel and all-road bikes is showing that we're headed in the right direction but there's a huge number of people out there still buying the bikes that they see being raced at the tour de france to to ride recreationally I think the success of the Caledonia is almost more interesting there than the success of the Aspero, which, which, you know, we know the gravel bikes have been popular. That's been the case for two or three years now. But the fact that the Caledonia is outselling sort of more hard-nosed race bike type road bikes, that's, that's pretty interesting to me because like, frankly, it is, a, it is a far better bike for almost everybody. It still can go fast if you want it to, but it fits a 33-millimeter tire if you want it to. I mean, it, it, it seems like people are finally kind of figuring that out. It's, it's yeah, it's not too far off of the bikes that, you know, we all we all build for ourselves, basically. I mean, but, like, looking at Cervelo's lineup, the Caledonia, I would say, is probably closest comparison is the R-Series. Mm-hmm. And, like, the R-Series bikes haven't been updated in what five years or something so if you're buying a new road bike and you're not you're not going to buy an s series which is a race aero bike like why would you go for the r bike when you could get the caledonia which is essentially like a very similar bike but you have a bit more tire clearance it is more aero because it has hidden cables and all that like why would you why would you buy the old bike over the new one yeah i mean i think that the r series is basically kaput it, I, I would I would wager that like five years ago, Cervelo was kind of trading on that S series though. I bet they sold a lot of those percentage wise five years ago, mm. eight years ago. Uh, probably far far fewer now is my guess. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Kaylee, you and I had this conversation the other day. You know, people like to talk all the time about oh, like you know, such and such gravel bike is like it can do everything that a road bike can do, but you can do, go off road and stuff. But then you get on an actual proper, real light, stiff, fast arrow road racing bike. And it's and so like, fun. <laughs> oh, crap. These things are really, really fast. And you kind of forget that they really are different. I guess the thing that's interesting now is that people seem to be putting a lower priority on just that out and out speed, that, that, that totally specialized speed on a particular surface. And they're now instead favoring a little bit of more versatility. They're willing to give up some of that absolute speed in favor of being able to just do more stuff with that one bike. I mean, I think that's what makes the Caledonia a cool bike though, is it's like, yeah, you can put a 34 millimeter tire on it or whatever, but like at the end of the day, it's basically just a road bike. So you can go put some normal road tires and jump in the road race on the weekend if you wanted and yeah. not be at a disadvantage. Or you could just leave 28s or 30s on there all the time yeah. and ride whatever you want. Like to yeah. me, that bike, I wouldn't necessarily call it an all road bike. I would just call that just a road bike. Like modern road bike. You can fit that yeah. size tire on a new tarmac. <laughs> Easily. 
that Caledonia is, is kind of... It, um, it's definitely not a first mover in what it is. Something like uh, the BMC Road Machine, I, I would argue, is probably more a first mover in that category. But like a, like a sporty, race-inspired, do-it-all road bike. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, that Caledonia, I think, has proven to the wider market that there really are... Um, there really is demand now for this type of bike. And I think we'll see a lot more of this kind of bike. Like, uh, you know, endurance bikes will become uh, sportier, I guess, to close yeah. that gap. Endurance bikes without a head tube that's two feet long. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Without... Which was always annoying anyway. <laughs> it was always annoying. Like, you know, just because you want a bike that isn't just like an absolute pure road bike doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be sitting bolt upright. Exactly. So silly. Okay. Well, anyway, that will wrap up i guess sort of like the bigger discussion portion of this week's show which means that it is time for ask a mechanic Woo. i'm ready <laughs> i did promise i was gonna uh, make that joke literally every week and i am sticking to it born ready born with hammer in hand <laughs> so our first question is this one deals with a topic that i've actually wanted to, to deal with for a little while now it comes from justin valenstein uh, he says, I was a bit surprised by the recommended tire pressures from Pirelli for the new P0 race. I'm 175 pounds and currently using 28 millimeter Grand uh, Conti GP5000s on Bontrager Aeolus Pro 5 rims that measure out to 30 millimeters at 72 and 75 PSI front and rear based on the Silka pressure calculator. Pirelli, however, suggests 102 PSI for their 28 millimeter tire. So that is a huge difference. He said, I went back to the GP5000 box and they recommend 95 to 115 PSI for the clincher version and 65 to 94 for tubeless. Why are the recommended pressures from Silka so different from the manufacturers? And is it a bead design thing that's driving the difference between clincher and tubeless? Because Silka isn't liable if your Conti tire blows off the rim. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that. This Pretty is one much. of those, I would say like, do what feels right. If 70 PSI feels the best, then ride 70. If you like the way that 100 PSI feels, then great, ride that. Like, mm, Don't do that. No. Maybe, no, well, yeah, don't do that. But like... If you, but the difference between 70 and 75 isn't like so drastic. Just yeah. like do what feels right. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what I do, and I know Kaylee does, yep. is I'll put my tires up on my road bike to like, let's say 80 PSI, ride them. And then in two weeks when they feel too soft, then I put air in them again. Yep. And, like, <laughs> and you, then you put a pump on it and you know, okay, 55 PSI is Which, too low. It's actually, they, they, they'll go astonishingly low before they feel like they have to be yeah. inflated. Like, you'll, you'll put the pump on, you're like, wow, I've been riding around with 48 PSI in my tires <laughs> for the last couple. No wonder I felt kind of slow. Like, on a road bike, that's totally doable. I would not recommend doing that on a mountain bike or on a gravel bike or something yeah. where there's traction and pinch flats and stuff like that. Otherwise, yeah. you'll end up with a rim with lots of cracks in it, right, Kaylee? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> no, Zach's right. It, it, it's 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 a liability issue. The tire manufacturers are going to put numbers on there that are going to keep them from getting sued. Silka is going to give you the number that is going to probably ride the best from a traction and comfort and rolling resistance standpoint. Go with the Silka version and you'll be yeah. happy unless your tires fall off, in which case, don't, please don't sue us. Uh, just to add to that, um, I would like to just give a shout out to those Pirelli ties because they've introduced the Wham and um, Vam Bam Wham and Wham, Wham and Ram so Ram with, okay. as we need to come I'm up with a better name I'm thinking of Vam as a as a climbing term uh, yeah so they've introduced that which is um, it's cool to see a big plus yeah 
it's yeah. So I guess just to just to recap recent. what yeah, just to recap what what Dave was talking about, uh, WAM and RAM are two metrics that uh, Gerard Vrooman introduced uh, from 3T. Uh, it's basically just a way of providing a an actual more informative metric for what your tire is actually going to inflate out to. Uh, so WAM width as measured. Uh, that number goes along with a specified internal rim width for clinchers. Uh, so it'll be like, you know, I don't know, like wham 19 equals 28 millimeters or something. And then it'll be like wham 21 equals 29 millimeters. But either way. Sounds like that, algebra. I mean, if we all ride tubulars, the well, tire width doesn't change with the rim width. We just don't right, ride tubulars. Exactly. <laughs> tubulars for life. But with clinch. But with clinchers, since the radius, the outer radius and the width changes with the with the, the, the rim dimensions, then it's good to have that figure on the box. So kudos to Pirelli for doing that. Yeah. Despite the fact that they're Makes telling sense. people to Yeah, despite the fact that they're telling people to run hundred two PSI for in their twenty eight millimeter tire. So that's I don't think I've run above seventy in, in a while. Don't do that. Same. Yeah. Same. Moving on, Velo Club member Eric Poli. Uh, he has Altegra Di2 on his road bike. Said, uh, besides the obvious drivetrain cleaning and lubrication, are there any Di2 specific preventative maintenance things that he should be doing? I mean, no. you gotta wax your nodules. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, occasionally Shimano comes <laughs> out with. That's a Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. You're gonna have an actual yeah. answer there. Occasionally, occasionally Shimano comes out with firmware updates. But I wouldn't say that's like necessarily going to improve the function of it. Or like, if your bike's shifting fine, there's no reason to go out of your way. Because yeah, you have to either have the PC hookup to do these updates or a Bluetooth thing in line with the the E2 wires on your bike, and then you just go through the app. But most people don't have these things, so it's not really something I would go out of my way to get firmware updates. I would say like, if you're taking your bike shop to get service at a good shop. They should do firmware updates as they're doing a service to your bicycle, but otherwise, like charge it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, if you do have that little Bluetooth thingy, you must make sure to swap the shift buttons on your friend's Di2 bikes every <laughs> once in a while. Now they have you have to have a passcode to get into oh, it. Yeah, uh, ruined. Damn. Um, what I what I would what I would say is just uh, it's pretty bomb proof reliability wise as far as you know just doing the very basic chain maintenance and all that uh it'll keep shifting but just maybe pay attention to your wire routing and make sure that the the wire routing i guess is as clean as possible and that you're not going to get it kinked with i mean that's like, or that yeah. it's going to you know wear wear away the wear away at the wire um i occasionally do see bikes with like the rear tire rubbing the front derailleur wire or you know the the wire getting pinched as it comes into the front end of the frame just because it's not routed very nicely so Stuff like that will just ensure that you you really have a, a problem-free ride. So basically, Eric, uh, there's not really anything you need to be doing. So just keep doing what you're doing. And your bike is, your DI2 is either going to work or it's just not. But hopefully it will just continue to work and you won't have to do anything aside from charge the battery every now and then. So mm. moving on, Wax your another Velo Club. Yeah. Another Velo Club member, Enrico Gizarde, is uh, a couple of questions, but I think we're... Well, yeah, so we'll, we'll address both of your questions here. So he uh, he recently purchased a used Cannondale CAD 12 as a dependable winter bike. Hell yeah. Uh, what, do, what do we think about Jaguar slick liners? Uh, and then do, do you think that they are a worthy... Ultra, uh, do you think that they're worthy... Ah, do you think they're a worthy addition to internal but exposed cabling? 
Hmm, so we'll, we'll address that question first. So the the slick liner thing, uh, I mean, they're basically just like clear liners. I mean, a Cat 12, so. that it goes in internally through the down tube, and then it pops out in its external cable from the bottom bracket back, right? Mm, I think it's, uh, it's internal all the way I through. It, I think it's internal all the way through the chainstay. Yeah, it goes oh, yeah, yeah. Um, through the bottom of the bottom bracket shell, and then yeah, through the chainstay. So it never exits the BB? No. Hmm. I, I mean, I've had... Uh, there have definitely been a bunch of times when I have resorted to using cable liners like that, um, but it's usually been for pretty specific instances. Like on a bike like that, the cables, the internal cable is, it's exposed in the sense that it doesn't run through housing from end to end, but the part that is exposed is inside the frame. So generally speaking, it should be pretty you know, impervious to weather for the most part. Um, and even if it does get something on it because it's not sliding through something, it's sort of just like sliding through air. It doesn't really matter if you have a liner on there. I mean, there have been times when I've used a little bit of liner on like bottom bracket cable guides and stuff like that, like you know, just specific instances. But I don't think he should need anything like that here. Uh, I mean, unless there is something really weird with how with how that cable is run around the bottom bracket. Um, mm, it's a bit curvy. Part, it's, it, is, it is a bit curvy through there from memory. Um, yeah, it gets yeah. There's a few weird angles in there that I think a bit of liner there probably does help, but I I don't think the the full sealed from yeah. housing end to housing end is required. I mean, I would say like in my experience, not necessarily just on this bike in particular, but kind of in general, for all of the liner things, like most of them on the market now, start where the housing stops and then go to the derailleur where the housing restarts again, and that like it's never actually fully sealed, so like you can still get water in it. You can still get dirt and grime in there and it still is going to need replaced when I guess I'm thinking compared to like the older gore systems where it was literally a liner. They went through the housing from the shifter all the way to the derailleur. And then it was 100% fully sealed. I would say like, in my opinion, I would run the bare housing or bare cable. And then it's a lot easier to clean at the bottom bracket guide. You just drop a couple drops of lube at there every once in a while, keep it running smoothly versus like, as soon as that liner starts to get gummed up, then you have to replace everything. Yeah, and he's. I think he said that he was basically looking. Yeah, he said that he's looking to use this as a uh, as a dependable winter bike. So you know, or just run unless, full housing and zip tie it along the chainstay. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, Enrico, unless you are able to find some new old stock Gore housing or Gore cabling housing, then yeah, I mean, I I think I would agree with Zach. You probably don't need to run that Jaguar slick stuff. I don't think that's going to get you anywhere. Um, so yeah, I would just kind of leave it as is and just keep keep an eye on how the cables are doing in general um as to your second question though he said that um surprise surprise the bb30a on that bike is creaky <laughs> no um, but he ha he's yeah but but he he's running a power two max he's running a power two max crank with a 24 millimeter spindle what do you think about the wheels manufacturing bb30a to 24 millimeter thread together bottom yes, bracket do it do it definitely yep uh, what's nice about what's nice about that bottom bracket is it directly adapts that crank set to that oversized shell with no additional spacers or anything. Um, I did. I think this question came through on the Velo Club Slack channel, and I did see someone uh, suggest that you just use kind of step down spacers. Uh, I would strongly, strongly advise against adding spacers and any sort of like step down reducers to that because basically anytime you add another 
pressed in or slip fit interface to a system like that, you're basically just adding another spot for things to creak and move. Uh, so I would ditch that all together, um, ditch the stock bottom bracket all together, absolutely get that wheels manufacturing set up. And that should be a pretty quiet setup as long as everything is installed properly. And assuming the bottom bracket shell is not like grossly, grossly out of spec. It's just yeah. aluminum, so it should be machined properly. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've used that bottom bracket in a Cannondale before, and it, it did solve creaking issues. Um, and it's yeah, nice to install. Doesn't require any special tools. It's it's yeah, it's a good way to go. Cool. Speaking of tools, uh, Jorge, I don't know if it's Jorge or George. I don't know if you go by the anglicized pronunciation. Uh, uh, hmm, Jorge de Grange. I totally am definitely butchering that name. Nailed it. Anyway, he's a camp- yeah, he's a campy fan, and it's time to change the chain. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't want to spend 150 euros for the Campy tool. However, is he going to be okay if he buys a Unior tool for 70 euros? Or what about even cheaper than that? Or should he just use a Master Link? Any of the options will get the job done. As long yeah. as you repeat, repeat. I mean, if you're if you're Dave here, then you'd buy the Campy tool, obviously. <laughs> no, no, actually, I actually <laughs> or, don't or own multiples a of them. What? You don't own it? What? Oh my! No, I've got like I've got like six other chain tools that do campy painting. So yeah, I mean, I, the camp? right? I would say unless you're working on campy chains a lot, like there's no need to spend that much money for the campy chain unless you just like nice things. But yeah, I would say like the Unar one, Park makes one. Like there's all kinds of ways you can repaint it. And if you don't want to deal with that, then just yeah, put a Masterlink in it and it's fine. Yeah, Team Masterlink um, here. Yep, that Unior. So I've actually used pretty much all these chain breakers. Uh, that Unior one is actually quite nice, <laughs> and it works with basically every chain on the market, which is quite good. So even like new SRAM flat top. Uh, the other one that's r- really good value is uh, Pedro's Pro chain tool. So it's their mid-level chain tool, and that actually will peen Campagnolo um, as yeah. well. And that's I think that's like a fifty-dollar chain tool. So it's it's quite good value, um, and it's fully serviceable. Yeah, so that's yeah, the same as the park park. That's like their something master for chain tool or something there's like a little part that pops into where the where the chain settles in yeah the problem with that that park tool is that uh it won't fit unusually shaped chains so correct um, but if he only rides campy top is out and yeah so if he only rides campy sure but yeah whiffman chains and shram flat top don't fit in that park tool and and shimano 12 speed so, mountain bike yeah yeah but anyway yeah. lots of options that don't cost 150 euro master yeah. link yeah or just use master link master link <laughs> Yeah. But but Dave, I feel I feel like someone needs to someone needs to kind of jump on the grenade and just you know, find out if that 150 euro tool really does offer anything. I mean, no, it's really nice. <laughs> it's re- it is it is, really it is it is exceptional. It's like it's yeah, it's probably the closest competitor to Abby's decade chain tool. Like they're both very similar in terms of quality. So if you want the very how, best, then sure. How how similar are they though, Dave? I, I need to know how similar are they. Do you, do you want? Do you want, I'm. I, you seem to be uh, hinting at needing three thousand words on this topic. <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't. I don't need. I don't need any words on this topic necessarily. I'm just trying to goad you into get, buying yet another chain tool. I uh, need three thousand words. I mean, I topic. can verify it's really nice. I have one. Can I expense this chain tool? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you you cannot expense this chain tool. There's basically no editorial value to come out of it whatsoever. But I'm just trying to get it into your head that you don't have it. So you should have it. All right. So I mean, you have, if you're going to get the new one, then you also have to get like the old 10-speed Campy chain tool and then the one that prior to that. Like they have one for every version. Yeah. And I've, the used, I've used many of these in shops, which is why I didn't feel the need to buy one. But uh, now that you've said it, I probably do need to get myself. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. 
All right, moving on. Uh, I don't have this person's full name. Uh, his Twitter handle is Predimtio. Not, not really sure how that's supposed to be. Um, but they are asking, how do I prevent my rubber hoods from becoming sticky and loose? Uh, I probably replace mine every year. Is this normal? I live in a tropical country and generally don't like to wear gloves. Sweat less. <laughs> <laughs> or just replace your hoods once a year. Yeah, I think that's just a that's just a sweat issue, right? I would say like really sweat. Any and I don't think there's any way around it. Sweat and like I've seen sunscreen kind of really mess up hoods as well. Mm. Yeah. So either wear gloves or like hoods are not them. very expensive. Yeah, I just replace them. And especially if he's on yeah. mechanical, like rim brake stuff still, like the hoods are super easy to slide over the front because they don't have the big bulbous hydraulic bit in them. So like, yeah, hoods are 20 bucks, put new ones on, new ones on once a year. Like probably need, if you're riding tropical and sweat that much, you probably need new cables and stuff anyways at that time. <laughs> Do it all at uh, once. I'd, I'd add, um, just based on Shimano's own guidance, just uh, like wash your bike, but also just make sure you're using a pH neutral soap. So I'm sure if you're using like a super acidic soap or uh, or similar, um, perhaps that's degrading the rubber as well. Or if you're just not washing your bike as well, that would also be degrading. The rubber. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, in in short, though, essentially no. Like it, it sounds like he's basically like he doesn't like to wear gloves. He lives in a tropical country. There's a lot of sweat. Like it sounds like you're just gonna be going through hoods. So I mean, it's the same as like mountain bike grips. They get gross and sticky after a while. It's just yeah. how it works. Oh, yeah, and when they get sticky, they get really, really disgusting. Like, I hate that. Yeah, so na- just so nasty. Okay, last question before we wrap up for the day. It comes from Lee Cox. Uh, what would you recommend for finishing tape on handlebar tape other than the usual electrical tape? I'd say never use the like cheap plastic tape that comes with the bar tape. Like, that stuff's just garbage. It's horrible. Yeah, I personally, I really like, um, it's just like cotton cloth the adhesive back on it you see some of the the, like euro teams using it it's just like it's nice like athletic tape almost kind of it's Um, it's electrical fastening tape yeah but basically the advantage of that like it if you live somewhere where it's hot and sweaty and electrical tape gets sticky and gross and slides around this doesn't do that um eventually if you ride like let's say your bar tape goes all the way to your stem and if you ride with your hands in the middle all the time right on it like eventually you'll get some threads coming off but it doesn't get disgusting and sticky and yeah, yeah. So that's why i like that uh, other other i mean i i typically just use a really high-end electrical tape from 3m or or nito sort of the yeah i mean that's I another use. thing too there's um, within electrical tape there's a massive range of like yeah stuff that's nice and stuff, stuff that's not yeah um but otherwise yeah so some like occasionally like i've done with like um some more arrow shaped handlebars where you've got the bar tape ending sort of right where your palms sit and you're going to be rubbing on it um i've actually found something like uh silicon self self-fusing silicon tape uh which is sort of sold in like the plumbing section of hardware stores um yes so i kind of only sticks to it yes i sell some of that too what's that ESI, the company that makes grips, yeah. they sell some of that too. Yeah. yeah, so ESI sell the same stuff. Um, that's like super stretchy and it's actually quite durable. It's like almost like rubber. Yeah, the thing, the thing I don't like about that is because you have to stretch it to put it on, then the width yep. of it becomes really inconsistent it and does. it doesn't yep. it doesn't look good. No, it's tricky to wrap for sure. Um, and yeah, so that that's one option. Um, otherwise, yeah, you could do the the Team Ineos way, which is to super glue the, the tape yeah. and hope you don't cut yourself. Yeah once it dries and i've even i've even seen people this is very rarely but i've even seen 
on occasion over the years, people using a big piece of heat shrink tubing. Yeah. Like, you know, f- feeding it Much through. Much more and, like, complicated you know, with running cables and housing and that. stuff. <laughs> oh, that's Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there, there's definitely some there's definitely some pre-planning involved, but I mean, it's a super, super clean way to do it. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's durable. It's not going to come unwrapped. There's no adhesive and whatever. So that is another option, but that one definitely requires a fair bit. And there's a reason why I really don't see it very often at all because it's a huge pain to do. But yeah. if so, you do it, we'll be impressed. Yeah. <laughs> very. If you do it, send us a picture. Yeah. I mean, we're basically telling people not to buy bikes if the if the brake hoses are routed through the headset bearing because <laughs> it's just too hard basket. But it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to go to the same amount of work just to finish off your bar tape. Yep. And you have to redo it every time you know, need your bar tape. It's not the same amount of work because like when you have to replace it, you can just cut it off. You can't you can just cut the heat shrink off. You can't do that with a headset bearing. Yeah, but then how do you get the okay. new stuff back on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh well, yeah, that is that is true. That is true. Well, like, like I said, I mean, there's reasons why you don't see it, right? Every time you do a headset service on your bicycle that takes three hours to do a headset service, <laughs> then you can put yeah. new heat shrink on. Well, I mean, yeah, not not the most practical selection. I'm into it. I think everyone should do this. Oh, I I almost forgot about our bonus question. Hold on. Oh yeah. Hold on. Special for Kaylee. Let me, let me pull up our bonus question. Uh, Kaylee, they tagged you in here too, so. Uh, not really sure with this JL Galash. So my apologies if I'm butchering your name as well. Uh, would like to know, Kaylee, what is the bodgiest, <laughs> the bodgiest of bodged fixes that you have ever performed on a bike? And Whoa. he actually is so curious about that. He's actually so curious about this that he thinks that this could be a weekly section of the Nerd <laughs> Alert podcast. So, oh, there's, yeah, there's plenty. I could, yeah, we could we could absolutely make it weekly and, and have it last a couple of years here. So, all right. Well, what's what's your favorite? What's your most memorable at this point? Oh, there's just you're making me choose between my children here. Like this is uh, there's so many there's so <laughs> many excellent ones that I can't even. I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm just gonna go early. I'm gonna go early in my mechanic career. This is back when I had. I think I was like 13, maybe 12. Is when I first started riding road bikes, and I had a I had a Novara from REI, and uh, it had Sora on it, and I thought the Sora crank was super ugly. So I went down into my into the basement, and uh, my dad raced in like the 70s and 80s, and had just piles of of like you know, camping over record and stuff like that. And I just figured out, <laughs> I, I tried to figure out how to get this. There's all square taper. So I just tried to figure out how to get this campy Nova record crank onto the, uh, onto this Novara. And the then square I, tapers are different. But exactly. <laughs> Attempted. And so I basically just like sort of whacked it on there and like tried to bolt it down and it fell off uh on the second bike (laughs) that's a a big surprise in my defense i was like 12 and i didn't know anyone i was doing also the the internet didn't exist and And my dad was like i don't know sure it works i haven't worked on bikes like 15 years (laughs) he had no idea so i tried that and and so before it fell off it started just wiggling and i put a dent in my chainstay (laughs) from whacking it into the chainstay so that was good that was that was uh a real highlight i think of my mechanical excellent career. yeah and excellent. and it involved th- a hammer so it's a highlight of all it, it very much involved <laughs> yeah. a hammer and then yeah. sort of like finding a random bolt that fit the threads and like sticking a washer on the outside and holding it on yeah yep. it was great <laughs> not every square taper is made I, equally 
Oh man, I, I I feel like I have Kelly. I feel like I have to I, I have to help you out a little bit here because I feel like I ha- I have a good one to add as well. Mm. Also related to when I was much younger and didn't really know anything about how to work on bikes, I had a a Schwinn World Sport, uh, a bike that I've actually mentioned before in a previous column. But um, I remember that I bought a new stem for this thing, uh, either from Bike Nash Bar or Performance. It was one or the other. Uh, but I also distinctly remember that there was no I, I didn't know what length i needed oh what the, how about that zach actually has a that crank arm right there yep. kayla you have you, yep. kayla you have another you have another shot of redemption here i'm gonna put it on um, i'm gonna put it on uh my mountain bike yes perfect <laughs> anyway i bought a new stem for my schwinn and uh i don't remember actually ever specifying a length for the stem so i think i kind of just guessed uh luckily i think i sort of guessed correctly but uh back then there were a couple. Well, there was more than one common handlebar diameter at the time that Stupidest I came to find out ever. much later. <laughs> yeah, so there was what twenty twenty six point zero millimeter, twenty six point four, and twenty five point four. And uh, come to find out, I think I bought a twenty five four stem, and I had a twenty six zero bar. Oh, that'll fit. Which, yeah, you just you just spread the stem out. <laughs> Well, no, what what I, what I ended up doing, what I ended up doing was, you know, I dug around in my dad's toolbox and I found a half round file, and I basically just yeah. hand filed the inside of the stem until I kind of fit, you know, and I definitely did kind of pry it open a little bit as well, and you know, this was back in the day of sleeved aluminum handlebars, and like you know, they kind of just, you know, they were really heavy, they lasted sort of forever ish. It's just of. like the opposite and, of yeah, using I, a pop can. Yes, yes, exactly, and and I definitely. That was definitely a very bodgy repair. Did so it didn't I, break I didn't, on you I though? Didn't die though? Didn't break. It, it did not break. It did not break. I don't remember how much longer I had that bike. I also don't remember what happened to that bike. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it, uh, that that was not that was not my finest moment. Yeah. But it, it did work. I mean, it, it went on there. So a cycling tip. We have a cycling tip for you. Don't file anything on your stem. As no. a general rule. Especially <laughs> yes. the stems yes. made nowadays. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, think, and, I think this is a good way to end the show every week. Yeah, we, uh, we've all got say, plenty. On, I've got some good ones. On, <laughs> on that note, yeah, for sure. On that note, I think it is time to wrap up for the week. And, and yeah, I agree, Kelly. I think that is a good way to end every show. We'll, we'll we'll just have to see how many more we come up with. I'm I'm eager to hear some of Dave's. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Mm, you anyway, can't watch something when you have the right tool. Final disappointment. <laughs> anyway thanks as always for tuning into this show if you enjoyed what you heard and you have not subscribed yet please do so on whatever method you use to get your podcasts Uh, if you have not yet left us a rating or review on itunes please do so if you haven't joined velo club our membership program please consider doing that as well because that is certainly a big thing that helps us continue to do this podcast and maybe most importantly, please tell your friends about Nerd Alert because we would like to have this show listened to by more people. So with that, we will see you in another week. Bye-bye. Bye. Jeff. I have one thing to add. One thing. When you when you send us mechanic questions, when you send us mechanic questions and things like that, and maybe spell your, your name out phonetically so we can say it properly. No, I think I like the attempts of how, <laughs> uh, how we can mess it up. <laughs> 
watch James struggle. Unless you like having your name pronounced incorrectly, in which well, case, when, leave when, it. When I have when I have time, I've been trying to contact these people to get clarification on how to pronounce their names, and I just haven't been able to get in touch with everybody. So, like, they, that that's why question Clearly number James one was, never has time. I mean, the people the people listening to this don't see how the name is written down. It's true. That's that's true. That is true. But you know that that that's why it was Justin Valenstein, or no, Stein? that's why it was Justin Valenstein and not Stein. Stein. And I and I made sure to check. So anyway, I got that one right at least. So, and anyway, and George de Grand is it George de Grange is like know. French. George, George. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. So if 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 we answered your question on the show. And if I butcher your name, which is a very strong possibility, then yes, please write in and let us know. Let me know how how I how I was wrong, the error of my ways, and please try to correct me. Yep. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Bye.